Welcome to the Vibrant MD Podcast, where we discuss weight loss, women's health, and food. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Awad, a family doctor and certified weight loss coach. This podcast is informational, but is not meant as medical advice. Anything you want to change after listening should be discussed with your own doctor and personal medical team. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Hello, my vibrant friend. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I am thrilled to have a friend of mine, Dr. Nikita Shah, who is in Florida. She is an obesity medicine doctor and a weight loss coach. She has a practice there in real life in Florida. And thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of yours. So I am Dr. Nikita Shaw. I'm a family medicine doctor turned full-time obesity medicine doctor and weight loss coach. I have a brick and mortar practice in Orlando. And my goal is to bring science-based medicine and personalized obesity treatment to my patients in real life. Awesome. So we are actually going to talk today about medication versus non-medication treatment of obesity. And if you're trying to decide what you want to do, if you're overweight, have weight loss goals, or maybe even have medical issues related to obesity, we're going to talk about those things today with Dr. Shaw. So yeah, Dr. Shaw, please let us know, you know, for the person who comes in and they're just like, I'm overweight, what should I do? How do they decide whether or not to do medications or really dial in on the lifestyle portion? Yeah. So usually the conversation is I have I have overweight or obesity and I've been trying to lose weight on my own and I have been unsuccessful. So now I need some professional guidance. And where I come in is really to help navigate what would be in the best interest of the person with like my expertise. And so when someone's coming in, most of the time people are a little nervous to use medicine because when we're taking anti-obesity medications, we really want to be considering it for the long term. And unfortunately, we've had some history within weight loss industry and obesity medicine industry, negative side effects with medications in the past before. But we're in this new era where we're actually finding that treatments are beneficial for people and they aren't coming with some of these cardiac complications. So my job as a doctor is to kind of pair the person to the treatment that they would like. And to answer that question of like, how do we decide between medicine or lifestyle? Generally, it's comprehensive obesity treatments and is four pillars. So it's medications, lifestyle management, nutrition, and physical activity. So we do all four. But depending on the severity of the obesity that we're dealing with. So I use the Edmonton Obesity Staging System. So it's stages zero to stage four. So when I'm doing my evaluation, I'm looking to see if there is overweight and obesity, what type of class of obesity do they have? Meaning what's their BMI and body fat percentage? And so that's in three stages. So class of BMI between 30 and 34.9, then class two is 35 to 35. 39.9. And then class three is greater than 40 or equal to 40. So we're classifying it and then we're putting in the staging system. So when I'm doing my medical intake, I'm saying, are there any obesity related risk factors? Are there any physical symptoms present? 
any psychological symptoms present, and any sort of medical conditions present, such as diabetes, kidney disease, liver disease. And when we stage it out accordingly, if we're getting into the stage three, stage two, three, and four categories where there is a medical condition like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, PCOS, sleep apnea, acid reflux, or maybe stage three where we're having like significant obesity-related conditions such as, you know, a history of an MI or just severe mobility issues. And then stage four is just disabling and end-stage conditions. I think we can start deciding the risk versus benefit of treating the obesity in the greater picture. So what I do is I will risk assess. And then the second piece of that is asking the person if they're able to commit to lifelong treatment. So I think that there's a couple of types of people that come to see me. And I always joke that this is like the Harry Potter sorting hat. So if someone wants primarily lifestyle changes, they may be already meeting with a nutritionist or a health coach or some other people. If they're finally interested in medications, that's usually why they come to see me. And then if they're interested in surgery, they usually go see the surgeon. So that's generally how people wind up in my office. Right. Um, And I end up with, as a, since I do lifestyle coaching online, I also get the people who had side effects they didn't like from medication or, you know, just want to really dial into the lifestyle part. Exactly. And then in terms of another class of people is they're coming in and they've tried all the lifestyle changes and Mm -hmm. it's just not shifting. And I think that this group of people, they may have optimized much of their lifestyle, but they have this family history of significant heart disease and type 2 diabetes and things that they're trying to prevent. And despite their best efforts, it's still a struggle to either maintain or lose the weight. So taking the full picture into consideration is where we, ha- where we really determine, okay, is medicine appropriate in this case? So did I answer your question? Yes. No, that's very helpful. And I think two that you and I have discussed before that sometimes people have been taught lifestyle strategies that are not helpful. Eat less, move more, calorie restriction, especially for people midlife and beyond, you know, really are not helpful strategies. So, you know, there's always a piece of lifestyle that whether or not people do medication, they can probably get help with. Absolutely. So during my intake, it's um, quite long. So we're looking at all the aspects of lifestyle interventions and what people have done that they've found success with or things that um, may have even worsened their problems. And so we're putting all the clues together. Uh I think intermittent fasting is one of those where it's great for like one subgroup of people, but then another subgroup of people, it may actually increase um, some of this like night binging and overeating at other periods of the day. So when we look through all of the successes and obstacles that people have faced in the weight journey where I'm able to piece it together, I think more succinctly for someone. And with that information and just experience of doing this, I think it's a little bit easier to navigate and say, okay, let's do these lifestyle changes and see if we're going to get the result that we're after, or do we just start medication in addition to? So it's more of a balancing act. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, you brought up the psychological aspect and I do meet women too who will say, you know, I don't know why, I just have no motivation to do anything. I really want to lose weight, but I really have no motivation. And for me, that's a kind of, you know, raises raises my ears up that, you know, are there issues of depression here? Are there issues of 
professional burnouts. I work with a lot of professional women. How do you, you know, approach someone who is saying those kinds of things in your office? So I do screen for depression, depression, anxiety. I think that's big in the world of obesity and weight related issues. Another thing is sometimes the lack of motivation is just coming from many, many times where someone has been unsuccessful. So it's kind of like you're hitting a wall and you've been trying to lose weight and despite your best efforts, it's just not happening. So then the motivation kind of dwindles from that sense too. And then the third, which we both understand the motivational triad, but I think just highlighting and explaining to people that our limbic system and our kind of so to, you know, like our primitive brain is based off of this desire to rest, to seek pleasure, avoid pain, and conserve energy at rest. And what does that look like in modern times? That looks like a lot of sedentary behavior and a lot of eating. So I call it my Netflix and chill scenario. So if we're facing the lack of motivation, I think we could just break it down and say, well, are you not feeling motivated because of these reasons? And where is that coming from? But generally, if they're making an appointment, I think that there is a glimmer of hope that they they do want help and they actually are motivated. It's just really hard to kind of get back on the bike and ride it. Sure. Now, if you find someone when you screen them that they do have depression or anxiety, do you address that first? Is that a yes and with weight loss medication and treating? How do you think about that one? It's a yes and. So I think that sometimes with a compre- like just a comprehensive approach, it can be helpful to bring their family doctor in or their psychiatrist in to see, hey, perhaps we need to improve the mood when with a medication or some counseling or treatment. And then we can also continue with the weight care or, you know, we know that when people start to improve their lifestyle, their well-being, their diet, mood also improves. So these are all the little things that we go through in my first visit with a patient to see like, how are we going to kind of change this, change this course for somebody? Right. Now I will frequently get people who meet with me who say, you know, I've had a couple of high blood sugars and my and I have to go back and see my doctor again, but they've already said you're heading toward diabetes or they'll say my blood pressure is creeping up. And my doctor has said, really, can you, you know, try to lose some weight now? How do you talk to those people about lifestyle versus medication? Yes. <clears throat> so again, it comes down to risk stratification. So if someone has hypertension and established diagnosis of diabetes, I think we really need to look at the risk for cardiovascular disease because that's why we're treating these conditions as an organ failure and cardiovascular disease and making sure those fatal ticking time bombs don't occur. So we would need medicines in place if those clinical diagnoses are present. Now, if we are in a pre-hypertension category, a pre-diabetes category, then I think that there is a lot of room for lifestyle modification. And I think the kicker, because we've, we're both family medicine, we understand kind of the issues involved there is the kicker is, is that we need support systems in place for someone to actually expand their capabilities to improve their lifestyle. So it's very easy to say exercise. It's very easy to say, or like even say and give advice, right? It's like, go exercise. Sleep seven to nine hours at night. Go ahead and eat these eat these foods. 
like we can offer the solution, but really the person has to apply it in their life and kind of expand their abilities and capabilities to make it stick. With these chronic conditions, it takes a, it might take a little bit longer than what the person realizes to see the activities that they're doing treat the medical condition or prevent the disease. So often it's like, oh, in four weeks, will I have normal blood glucose? It's like, mm, no, maybe not. But we need to stick with this because we want to build these healthy lifestyle pillars into our life. Right. And I think that you and I as certified coaches also are very helpful with that because we help people see the stumbling blocks that they've put up in their own way. We help them with habit formation. And not that other doctors don't do that, but I, I think that particularly our training there is helpful, right? So all throughout the spectrum, there's choice, right? Mm-hmm. People get to do what they want. They get to choose what they want. We make recommendations. You make recommendations. But let's talk a little bit about that too, because I, I don't want that to get lost. Yeah. So um, specifically recommendations in terms of healthy lifestyle or recommendations in terms of medications or really whether or not they're going to do medications. Absolutely. Okay. So the person has the choice to decide whether or not they want to use medications. And that is always up to the person. And that's not just in obesity. That's with all medical conditions, right? The person always has a choice whether or not they take a medicine and adhere to medicine therapy or not. I do want to say that we cannot only use medicine and not do lifestyle changes. Like if we're using medication, ideally we want to be pairing it with lifestyle behavior, lifestyle changes as well to get the best clinical outcomes. So I don't actually think of it as like one or the other. I think of both when we're talking about medicine. And then I think the third little point is medications can help prevent disease progression. So if we're going to use medicine and we can like kind of halt the disease from progressing, to allow a person to kind of build upon that capacity to improve upon their lifestyle, I think that's key. But a person always has a choice in the matter because I can write medicines and prescribe medicines all day long. But if they're not actively picking them from the pharmacy, they're not actively taking the medication, they're not seeing the value of the medicine, then it's kind of a mute point. Yeah. And I, I want to bring up too that people that you've talked to me before about the different medications. There are choices oftentimes for any person and the best choices that you might recommend, but you, but people can have this discussion with an obesity medicine doctor, go through what, what kind of choices would be recommended. They can think about it for a while. They can, you know, I don't want people to feel like they're going to run into your office and, and be told what to do and not have any choice. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And within the framework, there is not just one treatment or one medication. So we're in this era of uh, the GLP-1 medications. So Saxenda was the original or Liraglutide. Wagovi came out about a year ago. Its scientific name is semaglutide, which is also known as Ozempic when we're talking about diabetes. And then Munjaro, which is also a GLP-1 and GAP agonist, which is approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, but people are finding tremendous weight loss with these medicines. So we're in this era of injectable medications that actually are giving a result that people have been after for so long, but these medications are actually the hardest ones to come by due to their accessibility, meaning does the insurance cover it or not? 
also availability because it's such in demand that there's uh, medication shortages. And then the third is really the side effect profile of these medications. But this class of medicine really, I think, helps people that battle with insulin resistance or diabetes along that spectrum, and then also helps with satiety or fullness. So usually this medicine is great when people are saying that they just never feel full. Mm -hmm. And the way it works is, is improving the fullness signal to the brain and also slows down digestion. But this medicine may or may not be beneficial um, or may not be my first choice if someone is telling me they're an emotional eater. Like if they're under stress and they're facing cravings all the time, it may not be the right one for them. And then there are another group of people who might struggle with binge eating disorder and they might need another type of medicine. So the classes of medication in which we use kind of really want to put the pic the picture together, like who the person is, what their struggles are, how do we use medicine, and then also do we need multiple medications as well. So often we can think of obesity as just using one medication to help with weight loss, but that's not actually the case. Sometimes I have to use multiple different medications to help someone with their weight loss goals in order to improve their health. Great. Thank you for highlighting all the different choices there are for you to recommend and for people to choose them for themselves. Because I think sometimes there's so much media on Ozempic that people think, well, if I go to an obesity doctor, I'm deciding Ozempic or not Ozempic. Ozempic. Yes. And there are actually multiple choices. There are. And we have we have the benefit of say, say insurance is not available to cover these medications or the medication is just not available. We have medicines that have been around for a very long time that we can use as well to help someone with their weight and their well-being. So that's where these discussions really come into play and like knowing who the person is, what their medical history is, and also what their insurance covers or doesn't cover. We can really come up with which medicine would be most suitable for them and their needs. Now, let's say that someone is on one of these injectables and then, you know, two months down the road, they can't get it. Their pharmacy can't get it. What do you what do you do with those then? Yeah. So this is a very big reality in our world. And I'm going to say that I don't think the answer is getting a compound inversion. Compound inversions are not FDA approved. They're not coming from facilities that are regulated by the FDA. I have a hard time recommending someone take treatment that I wouldn't offer to my own parents. This is like my rule. If I don't think it's safe enough for my parents or myself, I have a hard time making that recommendation to my patients. So even though these medications um, can be life-changing for people, like the injectable medications, I still think that we have a responsibility as physicians to offer the safest tested approved treatments. And if they're compounded, they have not been produced in the FDA-approved facility, the source is not Novo Nordisk or Eli Lilly, depending on the medication you're getting. Therefore, you're not getting the branded pure product. You're getting a knockoff. And I just don't think that the risk, whether short-term or long-term, is worth it because it's unknown. So that's, that's my stance on that. If the medication is not available, we could switch to another medication as well that is more generically available or more readily available. So there's always options between if this one's out, can we switch to something else? Do you ever do like partial dosing? I, I, 
I'll, I'll just put it out here because he doesn't listen to the podcast. Yeah. Cousin who is on Manjaro and, and when there were shortages, he took a half dose for a while and he said it wasn't quite as good, but it, but it's still. No, it is definitely a possibility. Yes. Like sometimes we can't escalate on the dosage. So what, what patients may see right now is like there might be a lower dose. Really the lower doses are there might be higher doses that are available. But say if they're on like the pens that are available, we need to extend them a little bit longer to wait until the pharmacy gets the next dose. We can do that. So that might be a less of a dose so that there is still something as we're bridging to the next the next dose. So each each case, I take it on a case by case basis. If somebody has type two diabetes, for instance, recently there was a shortage in my area of Ozempic for the two milligram pens. And so those patients, I just reduced down to the Ozempic one milligram pen temporarily. So it's kind of like each situation is a little bit different. And then we can navigate that situation as we move forward. We're not too far from the pandemic. And I think lots of things happened in 2020. So now my ability as a physician to just like navigate all the punches are pretty strong. So if there's if there's challenges, I think that's the benefit of working with a doctor in person is we're going to figure out a way to overcome even the medication access challenge because it might be right now we put a pause on something and then we wait until there's more readily available supply. And the truth is, is that um, these shortages with the injectable medications are expected to last for a few years. So this isn't going to be something that'll be remedied by January. It's going to be ongoing and as they're ramping up supply to meet the demand. So maybe if people are considering a doctor for medication, um, you know, some primary care doctors do this. Mm -hmm. Obviously, all the obesity medicine doctors do this. Um, You know, I want to put that out there just because some of our people are in rural areas and and don't have access. Yeah. Uh, But you may want to think about asking that question, how do we communicate when there are shortages? My primary care doctor currently is extremely difficult to interact with. Would not If I needed a medic, that kind of medication, I would not choose her to be the one. Well, she's terrific for other things. But, you know, I, I know that with your, your office that you guys do a lot of that communication, right? Yes. So that's where that's really the goal is while we're working together, we're trying to navigate all of these little road bumps, because truthfully, managing weight already is hard. But then we, if we're using a treatment, we want that part to at least be a little seamless and not so difficult. So it does help when you're working with someone one-on-one that can kind of help you navigate this piece too. I want to talk a little bit about disease again. High blood pressure, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, Now, we can take these medications and lose weight because of how good they are at helping us feel full, right? But nutrition still matters in those diseases, correct? Can you think on that? Yeah. So whenever we're talking about nutrition, we like it's it's kind of like the same things that we say across the board. So it's like eat more fruits and vegetables, increase fiber, reduce the, the bad fats, have healthy fats. Reduce the intake of high fructose corn syrup. Um, really, it boils down in my mind to eat real food. <laughs> like, like the simplest way is let's just eat real food and let's treat treats as treats. Like the simplest thing is if it was made on the planet, 
if you can identify the like the source where it came from, it's probably fine to eat. So like if it's close to nature and it wasn't manufactured, I think you're in good hands. The problem with our heavily processing of food-like substances or highly processed food is that they're actually designed to make us eat more of them. And some of the fats and the way the food they're made to be super high, um, they're designed to be created so that when we eat the food, we don't get full and we eat more of it. And therein lies the problem because there's food scientists around that are designing the food to make you eat more food. So it's kind of like why as a kid, I could eat a whole sleeve of chocolate chip cookies and I would not be full. But if you gave me a whole head of broccoli, I'd be done with it. <laughs> Three or four of it, right? Like we actually feel full. So that's how I say it. Like just eat real food. That's the nutrition piece of this um, for all of it. Would you Would you agree? I would. I would. And that those diseases get better with, you know, get improved with weight loss. Your health profile gets better. But also they. it's really important that the nutrition gets better because that also gives you the nutrients to make those diseases better Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. I think we just feel better. So often the initial challenge is when we're starting to eat well, sometimes we have side, like we feel unwell because we're actually just withdrawing from all those chemicals and substances we've been eating or like we've been addicted to sugar. But after you get through that hump, I really think that we can connect the dots of like, oh, I have more clarity. I have more energy. My body aches, aches less. If we are connecting those dots and seeing how our food choices are impacting our health, I think we're more likely to stick to it. The challenge is, is if the only thing that we're after is weight loss and not improved health, if those changes don't result in what you were expecting on the scale, then that can be very defeating. But I think the key really is, is that most of the time people are coming to see me, they're saying, I want to be healthier. I want to live a longer life. I want to be able to run around with the kids. You can do that at any weight. Yes. Like we can have any weight and do that. But it's actually the habits of our daily life, what we're eating, how we're what we're drinking, how we're moving, how we're supporting ourselves. Those are the keys to longevity. And it's really separate than like a pounds on the scale type of issue. So yes, there are some links and weight loss does help, but we don't need to have a normal BMI to feel healthy and to be healthy. Right. Really to make your medical conditions better, it's just like a 5 to 10% total body weight change, which for someone who's 200 pounds, that's about 20 pounds. So if you go from 200 pounds to 180 pounds and you're able to maintain that weight, your weight set point was higher, it was 200. But now if you're at 180, that's phenomenal because if you're able to maintain that and you're living a healthy lifestyle, then there's no reason to feel defeated because I guarantee you feel good. And that's really what we're after. So it's not normal BMIs across the board. It's not somebody else's like chart of what you should weigh. It's really just an internal thing of like, how do I live in my life? How do I feel in my life? And am I feeling comfortable about being disease free or having my diseases managed? Right. And we do know that that five to 10% does really make a difference for disease management, right? Yeah. Yeah. There are people who will get rid of their diabetes with just that 20 pounds. Exactly. And you're thinking, you know, I just want to say that too for the audience to give them hope. So if you're thinking, well, I'm 200 and 180 doesn't seem like anything to me. You may have some real huge health gains. Yeah. Uh, 
with that 20. Exactly. So I, I celebrate every win. Sometimes some people are coming in and we're just preventing weight gain. Like if they've been gaining weight and now we've just paused that weight gain, I, I also consider that a win. So I definitely think that we could reframe the conversation in terms of like how many pounds have I lost into like how much health have I gained and where are those areas? Because I think if we see it clearer, we're able to continue maintaining and not feel defeated in the process. Going back to a point that you already made too, is that most of the people listening are midlife and beyond women yeah. and some men. And, and I would say that all that group is thinking about health because yeah. you, know, you hit 50 and, and you're looking at your older relatives and thinking, what am I going to get? Yeah. What path am I on? What are my genes? Um, how can I feel better now? And a lot with lifestyle changes, people will, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people that I work with with lifestyle will say, I thought my knees were always just going to hurt because I was 52 or whatever from here on out. And then when they really looked at their nutrition, they're like, actually, my knees never hurt now. I can walk up and down the stairs. Sugar isn't worth it to me anymore, except to have, you know, on special occasions. Yeah. And I can identify with that. I used to have a big sweet tooth and I just loved it. And Halloween was, you know, just last week. And it's just now I go, is this, this going to upset me? My back's going to hurt. I'm going to get a migraine. I'm not going to feel good. It doesn't, it doesn't do it for me anymore. So no matter how great they make it taste, I just kind of understand the pain of how I feel when I have too much and I feel uncomfortable. And that's enough now because I've put the, like, I've linked it together of how I feel overall. And I just like feeling good in my body. I like waking up and not having headaches or being able to think clearly. So that's really it. It's not, oh, I will lose weight if I don't have the sugar. It's I feel awesome when I don't. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I do want to bring up two because, <laughs> because so many of us, you know, we have the voice of the judge in our heads and we go to shame and blame. I do want to let people know, too, that there is a genetic component to, we've talked about a genetic component of obesity, um, but there's also, some people really have a genetic component with type 2 diabetes and blood pressure. And so some people will lose weight and still be on two high blood pressure medicines and you have not done the wrong thing or failed. And we, you and I have a mutual friend who is absolutely tiny and could not afford to lose any weight, who is fighting genetic type 2 diabetes. Yeah. So, so right now, I think we are in a really cool era. It's We have pharmacology available to help us. We have all the science and knowledge to understand our body and our mechanisms. And we are in this place where like, there's a lot of mindset awareness coming out too. And we have the ability to get really good foods at all times of the year on our plates. And we have the advent of like, telemedicine and telenutritionists and like all these resources that are there. So I just think in this time period, there's, there's an abundance of resources. I think the challenge is, is like pairing ourselves to the right resources and creating our team. And to your point of like the medical conditions that I have, if you were just genetically predisposed to a medical condition and you need treatment, there is no reason to feel shame in that as long as we're taking care of the whole picture. So if I have, let's see, 
if I have rosacea, like if I have a skin condition, yeah, it's just a skin condition. I didn't do anything to get it. It's just a skin condition. I myself struggle with weight. I just have obesity. Like that's it. It's controlled, but it's a medical condition that I have. Like I put on weight a lot quicker than other people and takes a lot of managing, but that's okay because this is how my genes have kind of unfolded. Yeah. There is type 2 diabetes in my family. So my morning routine is to make sure that I can prevent the onset or ideally not develop type 2 diabetes. But even with my lifestyle the way it is, there is still a chance that I could develop type 2 diabetes. And I think I think it's because of our longevity. Like we're just hanging around longer. And sometimes our beta cells will just stop functioning, even if we take like use the best of our treatments and efforts available. So it could be a lifestyle thing or it could not be a lifestyle thing. Right. And the genes are genes. And same with high blood pressure. So I always caution people when they come and say, like, I want to get off of my medicine. I say, okay, we can try. We can try our best. But sometimes, sometimes it doesn't happen. And that doesn't mean that you're a failure or there's something wrong with you. It's just sometimes our genes are a gene. So if we want to reframe that as like, oh, I'm taking medicine to control my blood pressure. And if it makes you feel better, think I'm taking a vitamin to control it. Like, sure. (laughs) At the end of the day, I think the real the real thing is we're after a long, healthy lifespan. We want to be able to take care of ourselves. We want to be able to function. You know, we are familiar with this concept of like our 90th birthday and how we want to be at that point. So if a statin helps you get there, if a high blood pressure medication, like if antihypertensive treatment helps you get there, if anti-diabetes medication helps you get there, if anti-obesity medications help you get there, in addition to lifestyle, in addition to behavior treatment, sure. Let's use them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up there because I I think you just described that so nicely. <laughs> I, I did. I have done another podcast, which I think I'll come out before this one about medications. And I just want to reiterate, too, for the people who did not hear that one, that the injectable medications, this is an injection that is not painful. All of us have had their finger pricked to get some blood for a blood count or a blood sugar or something. It is not, I mean, those are painful and and these medications, the injections are are not painful. Very skinny needle, very, you know, going very far. Usually in my office, if we have the sample of the medicine available that we're going to be using on the patient, uh, they're really relieved. Like that fear of the needle, the fear of the first prick. It's really diminished when after the first dose. And often people are saying, I didn't even notice anything, which is, which is great because we have this real fear of being poked and discomfort, but kind of diminished with these new treatments. Yeah. Awesome. I will make sure that everyone has your information in the show notes. You're in Orlando, Florida, but can you just, for people who are yeah. not Go to the show notes. Tell everyone how to. Yeah. So my name is Dr. Nikita Shaw, and then my practice name is Weight Sense, and I am in Orlando, Florida. And you can find information about me and my practice at weight-sense.com, and that's weight like W-E-I-G-H-T-Sense S-E-N-S-E dot com. Are you on social media? Oh, as well? I am. Bless you. Bless you can find me on Instagram at Nikita Shaw Dio. Great. All right. 
Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you sharing your expertise about this uh, complex issue.